As we've been going through Luke, there's one word that keeps cropping up that I've noticed, and it's the word amazed. People were amazed by Jesus. So I've been thinking about this word amazed, wondering what, what kind of thing amazes you? Did anyone want to kind of shout out something they're amazed by recently? No one? <laughs> How about amazed we came second last night in the Eurovision Song Contest? Uh, in preparation, I thought of three things that I find amazing. The other few months ago, we went to see Back to the Future, the musical. Has anyone seen that? It's brilliant. I thoroughly recommend it. And what's amazing is the production. You can actually believe and see that this DeLorean car reaches 88 miles an hour on the stage of a London theatre and then flies. You can almost believe it. Another thing that amazes me is what happens in space. When I stand and look up, I just see little points of light and I think they're stars. But people with powerful telescopes look up and they can see that some of these little points of light, they're not stars, they are entire galaxies. And, and this particular galaxy is a photo taken in Chile through a telescope. This is called NGC 3521, which is quite a memorable name. And it's a galaxy, but it's not just any old galaxy. This has been categorized as a flocculent intermediate spiral galaxy. Because there are loads of different galaxies. You're amazed. Uh, and the final thing that amazes me is people who can solve a Rubik's Cube in less than 10 seconds. When I was in my 20s, I learned how to do a Rubik's Cube, and it took me 10 minutes each time. I have since forgotten it. But it, these people, they don't take 10 minutes, they take a few seconds. That's amazing. So, I've told you three things that amaze me, and maybe that's given you some indication about my personality. Maybe you know a little bit more about me than you did before. And I've reflected on those three things, and I think, they're a bit geeky, aren't they? They're all a bit scientific-y and mathematical. Well, anyway, enough about me. Today's passage, we're going to look at something where Jesus is amazed. And if we work out what kind of thing amazes Jesus, then we'll find out something more about Jesus' personality. And that's going to be far more worthwhile your time than learning about me. So let's have a look at the passage in Luke chapter 7. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people, and that was his teaching, what's called the Sermon on the Plain, rather like the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. Now, if you've been following the story, Capernaum is where Jesus set up his base. Although he grew up in Nazareth, the people in Nazareth got a bit hostile to him, so he shifted locations and he settled in Capernaum. It was referred to as Jesus' town. So there, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. Some translations call him his slave, the centurion's slave, and this phrase, his master valued him highly, sounds like he was a bit of property. It maybe it was kind of a monetary value attached to the slave. But that isn't actually what the passage says. The, the Greek word for value highly 
It's the same Greek word that Peter used to talk about the way the Father valued Jesus. He called him a precious cornerstone. And so this servant or slave was precious to the master. The master really cared about him. The servant, the centurion, cared about him. But the servant was sick and about to die. He was actually at the point of death. It wasn't a mild illness. This was very, very serious. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. And that's interesting, he went with them because Jews normally didn't go to the household of a Gentile and particularly an occupying army commander. But Jesus didn't worry about being uh, made ceremonially unclean. He, he was driven by compassion. He went without hesitation. And he was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to him to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Interesting, the Jewish elders said he deserves it. He gave to our building project. He deserves your help. But he himself said, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. When I read it, I was puzzled. I thought, what on earth is the centurion talking about? But Jesus was amazed, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. And then the men who'd been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. The healing in here is almost, by the way, you know, oh yeah, he was healed and it's a little afterthought. But what the real center of this story is about is Jesus, Jesus being amazed. And, and I've, I've known this passage a long time and I've always been puzzled by it. Uh, you, and, and sometimes you read the Bible and you don't understand it, you just skip on to the next bit um, until Dave says, would you mind preaching on it? And then you have to kind of say, well, I need to really get under the bonnet of this. What's going on? And one of the ways that you can um, get to understand one particular passage is to look at another bit of the Bible that may have some parallels with it. The Bible is meditation literature. It's not meant to be read, understood, right, got that sorted, let's get on with something else. The Bible, they want, it was designed so you come back to it and, and you think about it and reflect on it. And one of the ways you can do that is by looking at two passages that are similar. And the passage I was looking at was in 2 Kings chapter 5, there's a story of Naaman, the Syrian commander who had leprosy, and he was healed by the prophet Elisha. And if you're not familiar with that, then, then go away afterwards and, and have a read of it. But as I looked at the two passages, 
and some, some similarities and some differences. They, they prompt questions. They are both about Gentile army officers. They both involve illnesses that were incurable. They both have servants in them. In this passage, the servant, um, the servant was the one who was ill. In Naaman, the servant was the one who, um, who, who, who suggested, who was Naaman's wife's servant. And she said, oh, why didn't you send, why doesn't Naaman go along to the prophet in Israel? In both, there's an issue about whether the healing person needed to be present. Naaman was really upset because Elisha was sitting on his couch and just sent a message saying, go and wash in the river, you'll be fine. Here in the New Testament, it's the other way around. Jesus is happy to come and meet with the centurion, but it's the centurion that says, well, no, you don't need to come. But both stories end up with the Gentile army officer praising Jehovah, Yahweh, the God of Israel. They both end up with the healing that gives glory to God. And I found it helpful because it helped me to think through the centurion passage. So let's think about this centurion. Israel at that time was occupied by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had conquered the known world and they'd introduced this thing called the Pax Romana, the Roman Peace. They decided it, they wanted to stop fighting battles and then just bring peace to the area they occupied. And although it was peaceful, it wasn't very peaceful for the people who lived under it uh, because it, they were an occupying army. And a centurion looked after 100 soldiers, well, 80 to 100 soldiers. And it may be that the centurion was a, an ordinary soldier who'd been promoted, and that was like the, the highest rank an ordinary soldier could get to, or he may have been uh, an uh, aristocracy who wanted to go in the army, and if you were an officer class, the centurion was the starting point where you went. It's not, it's not clear. But centurions were intelligent people. They, they, they could read and write They'd shown leadership skills. They'd shown skills in handling weapons. And this centurion had been posted to Israel, a nice lakeside town called Capernaum, a fishing town, quite peaceful. But Israel was odd under um, Roman occupation because generally the Roman occupiers insisted that the countries they'd conquered, the populations would worship the Roman gods. But there was a dispensation for Israel. Israel was the only occupied country that had a dispensation that they could continue worshipping Yahweh and didn't have to worship the Roman gods. And we learned that this centurion, having been posted there, he had come to love Israel. He loved being there. He loved he loved the people. He'd, he'd paid for a synagogue. The elders said he deserves it. He's a really good guy. Um, and I was wondering about that. He's an intelligent man, well-read. Uh, maybe he'd read the Hebrew scriptures. Maybe he'd read about the Passover and the exodus of how the God of Israel had powerfully defeated the Egyptian uh, army. And maybe he compared that to the Roman gods. I mean, to be honest, the Roman gods are a bit lame because they're just copies of the Greek gods. So every Greek god 
moved into Roman gods, and, and they were stripped of their personalities. The Greek gods were quite interesting. They were quite characters. But when they became Romans, they, they got new names. They were named after the planets or other inanimate objects. Um, and, and what's more, Caesar, their emperor, he said, well, I'm a god too. And rather than elevating Caesar, well, in my mind, that just kind of brings down the Roman gods to the, to the level of, uh, of people. So centurion, he's used to exercising authority. He's used to commanding people. If he has a problem, he has soldiers he can send to go and sort out the problem. But today, he has a problem that he can't sort out. His servant, the servant he really cares for, is dying and nobody can cure him. And he'd heard of Jesus because they'd been in the same town, Capernaum, for some weeks or months. So he sent the message to Jesus and then waited. What was he doing when he was waiting for Jesus to come? He was maybe pacing up and down. Was he worrying? Going and checking on the patient. Is he still alive? And he's thinking, maybe he's thinking about this God, maybe he's thinking about the stories he's heard about Jesus uh, and the miracles he'd heard. Maybe he was thinking about the Jewish scriptures that, that maybe he'd, he'd read during this posting in Israel because he wanted to understand the country. And the, this Israeli God, he had created the world through a word. He just spoke and the whole world came into existence. And then this Jesus seemed to have some of the power of this Yahweh. And then he also reflected on his own organization, the Roman army. He had bosses who were telling him what to do, and he had people he could boss around, this whole chain of command. And he was reflecting on this and thinking, where's Jesus? I hope he comes before my servant dies. And then there's a moment of revelation all clicks together in his mind and he says what's happening in my organization the Roman army it's, it's very similar to God God is all powerful and he's clearly delegated some of that power and authority to Jesus and if God can create the whole universe by just a word then Jesus to whom he has delegated his authority can cure my servant with a word. He doesn't have to come here to my house. He just says the word. So he sends a second message saying, you don't need to come. Just, just say the word and my servant will be healed. He realized something, that Jesus had authority on the earth. Jesus had authority to heal. Or if you like it as a slogan, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That, that's a phrase that you must have heard a thousand times if you've been coming to church. But what does it really mean? Jesus has authority, not, not just in heaven, but on earth. We've been looking at Matthew 28. It says, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. And so the centurion finally gets it. It clicks. Jesus is Lord. And when Jesus receives that second message through the friends, he realizes what's happened in the centurion's life. The centurion has understood and he has believed and he has acted on that belief. 
And that is why Jesus is amazed. He says, I've been preaching to you Jews for ages and you don't get it, but it's taken this centurion, this Roman centurion. He has finally got it. Jesus has authority. Jesus is Lord. You may be familiar with the creed. In, in, in certain denominations, people will recite the creed as a statement of what Christians believe. And I discovered that the first Christian creed was just this, Jesus is Lord. And that is the heart of the gospel. That is the good news about Jesus. And I'm thinking, actually, it's a bit obvious to me. Why did I struggle with this passage? Because actually, Jesus is Lord. It's something I've known for ages, and the centurion gets it, and that's what Jesus is amazed about. And I think maybe, maybe we lose sight of the heart of the gospel. See, I've been taught about the four spiritual laws and, and the three circles as a way to explain the gospel or a, a bridge between man and God. And, and, and I, I've had so many ways of explaining the gospel. And they're all good and they're all true, but they're all derivatives. And the heart of the message is Jesus is Lord. Jesus has authority, not just in heaven. It's not just about, I'll go to heaven when I die. It's actually Jesus is Lord today, here, now, in my life, in my community, in my family. Let's move on. There are two stories we're looking at this morning. The second one is about a widow. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. And he said, don't cry. Then he went up and he touched the bier, the coffin they were carrying him on. And the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. And they were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. And this news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. So this took place in a town called Nain, N-A-I-N in the Bible. This is it today. This is the church of the resurrection of the widow's son in Nain. And Jesus had traveled from Capernaum to Nain. And Google Maps, which is a fantastic tool, tells me that it's 30 miles. It would have taken him 10 hours to walk. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you're thinking about someone and God prompts you, you give that person a ring. And you ring and you discover that timing is just perfect because they're in need and they really needed that phone call. Well, this is what it was like 2,000 years ago because Jesus didn't have a phone, did he? And when he felt that prompting from God, go to Nain, there's someone who needs you, he had set out and he walked for 10 hours. And a whole crowd of people walked with him as well. And because in, in those days you had to bury dead bodies quite quickly, otherwise they went off a bit, it's likely that Jesus started his journey maybe before the guy had even died. But anyway, he turns up 
in Nain, and he meets a widow, and it is the worst day in the widow's life. No parent should ever have to bury their child, and yet she was. She was consumed by grief. She was already a widow, she'd lost her husband, and now she'd lost her only son. And it wasn't just the grief, there would have been financial uncertainty associated with that. The son would have been the one going out to, to work in the fields or to bring an income. Now she was all alone. She was home to have to be reliant on her neighbors to care for her. And Jesus sees her and is just moved with compassion. Before any healing takes place or resurrection, he is just moved with compassion for her. And I wonder as he saw that little group of people coming out of the town, whether he thought, and he saw the mother, maybe he looked forward and thought, he knew that one day the body being carried out of Jerusalem would be his own. And his mother would be there. And maybe that's when he made a note to himself, I must get John to look after mum after my death. And he did that from the cross, told John to look after his mum. And Jesus said, don't cry. Look at another story of Lazarus. Lazarus, when Lazarus was dead, Jesus came along and Jesus himself wept. Even though he knew that he was going to raise Lazarus, he wept. But he says to this lady, don't cry. Anyway, the two crowds meet, the crowd, the happy crowd with Jesus, maybe a bit tired, and then the weeping crowd from the funeral. And Jesus touches the coffin. Once again, he wasn't worried about ceremonial impurity. I've met Christians who are so worried about being polluted by the world that they don't go into places as if a Christian going into the world will get polluted by the world. No, it's the other way around. When Christians go into dark places in the world, they bring light to those places. Jesus shows that. And so he, he raises the boy, and the crowd, because they're all good Jews, they think, they remember, oh, Elisha, he raised a boy, didn't he? And Elijah, also, he raised someone's son. And that's why they're saying a great prophet has appeared, because that's what prophets do. They raise dead sons. A great prophet has appeared, and God has come to help his people. It's a great story, great encouragement. So we've had two stories this morning. One about the centurion and his servant. One about the mother and the dead son. What are they doing in chapter 7 of the Bible? Because earlier, chapter 7 of Luke, gospel in the Bible, because earlier there's been a load of miracles, and then there's teaching, and then there's just these two stories, and then following it, there's a message from John the Baptist, where John kind of seems to be doubting, is Jesus Jesus, are you really the Messiah or should I be looking for someone else? Well, that's next week's uh, teaching. So, let's look at these two stories. There, there are two people there, the centurion and the widow. And there are two people I haven't pictured. There's a centurion's servant and there's the widow's 
son. And as you meditate on these stories, think, what are they teaching us? Why did Luke put them there? And I think because the next chapter is all about, is Jesus really the Messiah? When we look at these stories, we can say, is is Jesus really the Messiah? Do these stories tell us that Jesus is the Messiah? And actually, if you remember back in February when we were in Luke chapter 4, do you remember Jesus went to Nazareth and he didn't get a very good reception, but he made reference to two Old Testament stories. And one was Naaman the Syrian, and one was Elijah raising the widow's son. So Luke has deliberately put this parallel. As we look at chapter 7, Luke wants us to look back at chapter 4. And that bit in chapter 4 was all about Jesus saying what his mission was. And his mission was to heal the sick, to bless the poor, and usher in the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is where God rules through Jesus, his Lord. Jesus is Lord. So everything, both these stories are pointing to that truth that Jesus is Lord. All authority in heaven and earth belongs to Jesus. He's there to heal the sick, to raise the dead. And these four people in the picture, the two that you can see, the two you can't, they cover the whole range of humanity. They're male and female. There's rich and poor. There's powerful and powerless. There's free people, there's slaves. There's people who are really close by Jesus City Touches and people that are far off at a distance. There's young and there's old. There's Jew and there's Gentile. There's healthy people, there's ill people, there's a dead person. And in all of those situations, Jesus is Lord. All those situations, the gospel, the good news about Jesus is relevant. There's nobody outside the scope of Jesus. If this morning you're, you're, you're listening and you're, you're not a Christian, you're wondering about it, I know there are some people who think, oh, church isn't for me. I'm not good enough for church. I'm the wrong type of person to go to church. I, I, I'm too black. I'm too whatever. Uh, church isn't for me. Well, that's not true. Jesus is here for everybody, anytime, any place, anyone. And if you're part of the church and you're burn with this mission to reach out to people and share the good news. Is there anybody you're unconsciously filtering out and thinking, well, maybe they're a good prospect, but God wouldn't touch them. I know I've sometimes written people off as uninteresting to God. Well, that's, that's not right. Jesus is here for everybody and in every situation. So that's really good news, isn't it? Let's just reflect in the coming week about what it means that Jesus really is Lord. Let's close with a prayer. Can I ask you to shut your eyes and think about situations in your life where you don't yet see the Lordship of Jesus being worked out. Maybe you're touched by grief and loneliness Maybe there's a relationship issue that you're struggling with, someone in your family. Maybe someone's spoken some words to you 
that you know are wrong, but they've hurt you and wounded you and you just can't get them out of your head. Maybe you're struggling with some kind of addiction. Maybe there's illness, either your own or, or there's someone you love. Or maybe you worry about bigger things. Maybe you worry about the, the climate emergency, the war in Ukraine, the famine and starving children in East Africa. Whatever it is, Jesus is Lord. Jesus has authority on earth to deal with those situations. So can I ask you, just name it. Put some words to that situation. And can you imagine it like a, a big rugby ball in your arms with, with those words on it, holding it in front of you? That situation where Jesus is not yet Lord. And then pick up a bin bag. And the bin bag has written on it, Jesus is Lord. And take that situation and stick it in the bin bag and tie the cords up at the top of the bin bag. And now that phrase, Jesus is Lord, is surrounding that ball, that object. And then take that bin bag and in your imagination, put it at the foot of the cross. Did something similar at Easter where we put bags of rubbish at the foot of the cross. But this situation is now rubbish. It's past, it's gone. Jesus is Lord over it. And he's put it at the foot of the cross. And my prayer is that in this coming week, we would all learn to see situations where Jesus is not yet Lord and then remember Jesus is the one who raises the dead, who heals the sick, who blesses the poor. Jesus is the one with all authority on earth and in heaven. And we don't have to worry. Amen.